Thanks, Jed. Hey, good morning, Sunridge. Happy Father's Day. I know we've already said that, but right now in the chat, tell us what you're doing. Tell us, if you see a dad, you know, in the chat, like give him a shout out. Happy Father's Day. If you're sitting next to your dad watching this service, give him a big hug or a kiss. You're allowed to do that because uh, you're family uh, and you don't even need a mask to do it. So happy Father's Day. So so uh, proud to be a dad myself of three daughters and uh, to be a part of a church where I just have been seeing your social media already. I just, we have some great dads in this church and um, I'm just so grateful to be in your life at this time and to be shepherding this church. You know, a life of ingratitude has uh, long-term effects like sin, a little leaven tends to leaven the whole lump, right? Um, a life of ingratitude leaves us in a state of perpetual discontent. It blinds us to the good things. It can harden us. And often, ingratitude drives a wedge between us and our God. We tend to think of ingratitude as kind of an inconsequential sin. Uh, kind of like a side sin, but I think it's really the source of most sin. In fact, I think it's pretty easy to draw a link between each of the Ten Commandments and ingratitude. I mean, there's the obvious thou shalt not covet, right? Which is, in essence, all about being grateful for what you have, but don't we lie because we feel we're deserving of something or we're not deserving of a punishment or a discipline? Uh, don't we steal because there's something that we should have that we haven't been able to obtain rightfully? Even honoring our parents, you know, that's when we're ungrateful for the mom and dad and today, especially this Father's Day to be when we're not grateful for them, then we dishonor them. We're in, a, we're in a series right now we've called Wilderness, which is all about being in between. It's, the, it's when you're not where you were, yet you're not where you hope to be eventually. And I think it's a great time for us to talk about how most of us really could use and most of us really want more gratitude in our lives because what we're doing in this series is we're tracing the, uh, the journeys at a 10,000 foot level of the nation of Israel after they've escaped uh, slavery in Egypt and yet they're not to the land that God has promised them. They're in between. They're in the wilderness and that period of uncertainty tends to amplify our gratefulness or our ingratitude. You know, the, the word grumble or complain, those words appear 39 times in the New International Version Bible, and most often they are associated with Israel and mostly with their time in the wilderness. Last week when we first launched this series, we, we talked about how when Israel escaped Egypt, God sent them the long way and even though they thought they were ready for the next thing, they weren't. And so they needed to learn a new way to live. And so last week we talked about how the wilderness can 
teach us to be guided by God's presence because we have no other guide. We don't have a map and a schedule. Instead, we just, we, we have a guide, our Lord, that leads us. And today, I want to talk about how in the wilderness, we learn to live gratefully one day at a time. Now, almost immediately in the story, you see that the Israelites need to learn this because two and a half months into their uh, journey, uh, Exodus 16.1 says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, I'm pretty sure that they, the Israelites had not actually forgotten everything that God had done for them. But this is today in their life. And they're getting hungry and food is scarce. And they're worried about their future and their lives. And so grumbling starts. You know, it's interesting to me that this stress or anxiety of their current situation, it doesn't generate a prayer meeting, right? Or a committee or a work group to find a solution to their problem. Instead, it produces grumbling. Hmm. And we have a description of what the grumbling looks like for them. And maybe you can relate to this. First of all, there's blaming. You know, they, they attack Moses and Aaron, their leaders. This is all your fault. And certainly when we're in a period of uncertainty, that tends to catalyze blame. We start to point our fingers at the leaders or the circumstances or politicians or the coach or the system or the pastor. And we say it's their fault we're in this situation. We have to find a scapegoat for this discomfort that we feel and lack of control. And then grumbling also leads to like this forgetfulness nostalgia of the old days. I call it the old days syndrome. You know, the Israelites were saying, man, it sure was nice in Egypt. We had all we wanted there. Remember when life was normal? The truth is that you know, the good old days weren't so good for them. And don't you find yourself sometimes caught up in that kind of thinking that it's like, you know, back in the day, it was perfect. You know, it's never perfect. And certainly their situation, you, you look and you go like, how could their thinking be so far off? Aren't you glad that we're not like that today? We're so much smarter and wiser. But you have to think about, remember, who sent them in the wilderness? Who, who sent them the long way? Who put them in this situation? It was God. Now, it's not that there aren't things to complain about. There almost always is. But complaining doesn't have to be incompatible with gratitude. And in your notes, I've noted some things that I've learned from uh, psychology, that there are different kinds of complaining. And psychologists note, you know, you might be familiar with this first one, a chronic complaining. That's the complaining that is constant and it's always focused on what isn't good or pleasurable in life. And you know, it's pretty easy to just start to focus on the negative constantly and to grind on the unpleasurables in life every day. 
You know, there's evidence that shows that chronic complaining can rewire the brain to only see the negative. And the opposite is also true that having a more positive approach about things also tends to wire the brain to look more at challenges as an opportunity. But it does me no good to say that to a chronic complainer because they'll just dispense the idea because it would never work, right? Then there's venting. And everybody does venting. Venting is complaining that it's only really seeking validation of our emotions, not really looking for solutions. We just want someone to say, yeah, it's really awful for you right now. This is really hard, you know. Yes, you are underpaid. And yeah, your husband is lousy. And yeah, no, your kids don't listen to you. See, chronic inventing complainers, um, they affect themselves, but not just themselves. They also affect others around them. Not only do they end up being paralyzed and unable to move forward, but as the scripture says, you know, we should be careful lest a root of bitterness springs up in us and others are defiled. Then there's what psychologists call instrumental complaining. And this is the good complaining that focuses on the problem and seeks solutions. It's complaining with a view toward making a difference or change. And sadly, psychologists tell us that the data shows that less than 25% of complaining is the, this instrumental or good complaining. It's things like, you know, my spouse is charging too much on a credit card, so we have to sit down and talk about it. Or you have an employee in your company that's out of sync and they're unproductive, and so you have to have that employee counseling moment toward improving that. Or it's complaining when your kid is struggling at school to understand math, and you complain to the teacher with a view toward getting them the help that they need. When you think about the complaining that the Israelites were doing, what category would you put it in? Was it chronic? Was it venting? Or was it instrumental? And then what about you? Think about the things you complained about this week. What categories could you put those complaints in? I mean, there's a lot to complain about today, right? We are in the wilderness. But what kind of complaining was it? I love God's response to their complaints. In verse four, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. You're worried about food? I will send you manna from heaven. That's where that phrase came from, by the way. Manna, or what is it, is something that the Israelites discovered each morning on the ground. And scientists have tried to figure out, or Bible commentators have tried to figure out what exactly that was. Um, they called it manna, but uh, scripture tells us it was kind of a white, sticky substance that was sweet and tasted like wafers that were sweetened with honey. Sometimes, uh, well, some scientists believe that this was actually a sticky substance excreted by plant lice which I don't even want to think about that right now. Um, or it could be just a material that grew on the tamarisk tree. I don't know. Uh, I prefer to think of it as a miracle of God providing for them, as he often does. So there's, there's manna in the morning, and then uh, as you read through chapter 16 here, um, you see that God also provides meat, quail, in the morning. So you actually have the original Mediterranean food. You have kebabs and flatbread 
together. Just think about it. By the way, how many of you love Mediterranean food? What's your favorite Mediterranean restaurant in the valley here? Throw that into the chat because I'd like to see. I love Mediterranean food, but often when I eat it for lunch, I come home and Cindy goes, whoa, where'd you eat lunch today? Not that I ever had bad breath or anything, but you know, what's interesting here is um, there's the indication that God sees the Israelites complaining in a positive light and acknowledges that something needs to change. And so he responds. He doesn't express his wrath, at least not yet. In verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Basically, God says, I heard you. Because at the core, their complaint is valid. They're anxious because of their, their concern over surviving. And they are acknowledging that their dependence, that, that they are dependent upon God for their survival in this wilderness situation. That's a good thing. Now, this provision that God provides uh, comes with a user manual, and it's all in chapter 16. But you, we see that this provision, provision is a day-to-day thing. Uh, they gather manna in the morning and quail before evening. They gather only enough for that day, the exception being the day before the Sabbath when they gather two times as much for the next day. They gather only what they need and for those that are in their care or their household. And there's a promise that it will always be enough no matter what. And God tells us that living in the wilderness under this circumstance allows them to learn something. It's in verse 12. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. It's like God is saying, I'm taking this opportunity with you in the wilderness to teach you something. I'm teaching you dependence upon me. And when you learn that, you will learn to live gratefully a day at a time. Now, there's three things I want to point out about what it means to live day to day in this grateful state. First of all, living gratefully one day at a time requires that we receive from God daily, that we receive from God daily. We've already noted they're on the day-to-day plan. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. See, there's a daily dependence that God brings out that they've already acknowledged and yet he has promised to provide. God doesn't provide a farm. He doesn't create a refrigerator or a freezer for them. He doesn't build a grocery store. He doesn't start Instacart yet or DoorDash. They're dependent upon him day to day. We have this daily dependence where there's no promise that Our 401k is gonna earn 12% year after year. There's no promise of health tomorrow for us or that our business or our church will always be up and to the right. We don't have the promise of a perfect marriage or an always happy family. We don't even have the promise of peace on earth, goodwill toward men, not today. 
You see, true gratitude comes not from just what we have, but from our receptivity to what God provides and the manner in which he provides it. In, in, the, in the Gospels, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says that we should pray for our daily bread. Say that in the chat right now, our daily bread. Because today, we still have to operate on that basis of a daily grace. You know, the Apostle Paul desperately wanted to be free from something in his life. We don't know what it is, but after praying constantly and over and over and over again in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. In other words, Paul said, I'll be grateful for the weak places in my life because that's when Christ's power can rest on me. See, we have to ask ourselves, what do we want most from life? Do I want no weakness? Or, which I think, if we're honest, we, none of us enjoy that. But isn't it true that it's in those weak places, in those times of uncertainty, that we find that Christ's power rests on us? We have to ask ourselves, what is our source for that daily sustenance? Is it our news channel? Is it some politician? Is it social media? Is it the view? I think I should remind us all that God's grace is gathered daily. It's why it's so important for us to maintain spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and worship and prayer and fellowship and community with one another because God's grace comes to us through these sources. And yet, it's so easy to, to like find our source in our life in so many other things. I have this image, it comes from the prophet Isaiah when he talks about the coming of our Lord and he says that he's a wonderful counselor. And I think that in these days of anxiety and uncertainty and it's so fluid and the challenges that we're facing in this country, I picture myself sitting at the feet of Jesus on a daily basis as my wonderful counselor who can talk me off the ledge who can give me perspective. And often I find that that comes to me in reading my Bible or listening to a sermon. It's like God speaks to me then and his grace is sufficient for me in that moment, in that day. And, and when I have that perspective buoying me in the sea that is tossing and turning, there's a confidence in me, that I will know him and I will know that he is the Lord because I'm finding my daily bread in him. Now there's another thing 
I think it's part of living gratefully and it's tied to this, but it's subtly different. Living gratefully one day at a time requires that we give today back to God. This is different than being grateful for what we have or what we hope to have. This is saying that the day, today, is his. Where I am right now, not where I'm going to be tomorrow, not where I was yesterday, but today. Again, in Jesus' prayer, as he taught the disciples to pray, he said, give us this day, right? Give us the day. Giving God today might be the hardest thing to give him. You see, it's easy for us to give God our past and our future because we don't have any control over those things. It's much more difficult to give God today but it is the key to living gratefully day to day. Can I give my marriage where it is right now to God? Can I give the fact that I don't have a marriage or that I'm going through a divorce or I can see a divorce coming? Can I, can I give this day to him? If you're a father, can, can you give this day, this moment to your family and to your kids? Can you give your career this day in this moment to God? Can we give all the stresses of this day and time, can we give re racial reconciliation to God this day? I know that there are challenges and there are wars to fight. Can we give this day to God in the greater restrictions in the state that have come to us? Can we sit in this moment and embrace what God is giving us? Can we give him our anxiety today? Can we turn that into purposeful living in this moment? You know, whether we're worrying ourselves sick or just pining away for the sweet by and by, we have to ask ourselves, what, what are we missing in this moment? Because we're so focused on the past or the future. Right in front of you, right now, are your kids and your husband or your wife, friends that are dear to you, and people that need you. And there are opportunities before you to share the gospel. And you have a church and you have a community. There are things that are before us right in this moment. We have to give today back to God. Because as we said, he, he does his best work in the wilderness and so we often spend more time in the wilderness than we would prefer, and God, God doesn't seem that interested in getting us out on our timeline. In verse 35, telling the story of this time, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years. 40 years! Don't get discouraged. Until they came to a land that was settled, and they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. You know, they, they were sustained off this daily provision for 40 years. Jesus talked about, don't worry about tomorrow, but this is so much more than that in giving God this day. It's living and thinking intentionally with gratitude to what God brings to us in this moment. It's capturing our thoughts. In Philippians 4, 8, Paul puts it this way. Brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, each day is, and the global status or national status, if all these new facts come out, there's always somebody to tell us that these facts are unreliable. And there's always somebody telling us that they are reliable. People are saying these things are true, these things are false, and you don't know who to listen to. And it can create a cynicism in us in the moment that we don't, we don't think about anything good. Why do you think the Apostle Paul has to put in a letter, you know, admonishing Christians, followers of Jesus, that, that you should intensely think about these things. That's what it means to take this day and give it back to God. Lastly, living gratefully one day at a time leads to the rest that we're longing for. Living this way with um, being sustained by God's daily grace and by taking each day one day at a time It's actually what brings us to the point of being able to rest. And I think that in the story, this is significant, that it's after the manna story that Sabbath comes. In Exodus 16, 23, he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to boil, bake and boil what you want to boil and save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. This this provision lasted an extra day. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. So in other words, At this point, God is saying to the children of Israel, what I give you today will be enough so you can rest. And you know, I love this part in verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. That cracks me up. I don't know about you, but yep, there were still people that's like, "Uh, I don't know if I could trust that. So I'm gonna go out and look Anyway, maybe it's just me. But you know, it's like I can put myself in that, that situation because ingratitude, it leads us to a pace and a mindset that doesn't allow us to rest. It doesn't allow us to enjoy what is before us today, to love or to read or to sing or to serve or to surf. Our schedule and mind are jammed. And so we think we have to go out and get it again today. And we can't, we can't rest. Verse 29 goes on. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. And everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So those are the first stay-at-home orders, by the way. See, it's not a new thing. The children of Israel told that the Sabbath is made for you. 
Jesus repeated that. In Mark 2.27, he said, the Sabbath is given to people, not people to the Sabbath. What that means is you can take time for me time. You can rest. You can take time for you. If you're still chatting it up with us, would you put in there, I can take some me time. We're meant to do that. In verse 30, this is kind of like the most beautiful statement in this chapter. So the people rested on the seventh day. See, in the middle of the wilderness, in, in, in this period of uncertainty where they, they look to the past and they think at least the day was ordered and they look to the future and they have no idea what's next, they rested. It was a gift from God to them. How long has it been since you rested? You know, the past two weeks, I've had intentional conversations, group settings with uh, our men and women in blue, our police officers, and last weekend, um, Sunday afternoon, I met with uh, members from our, of our church that are of color. And I can tell you, like, how how weird that was to try and create that invite list. See, we don't, we don't have a list of the white people and the black people in our church. We had to just do it by memory. But we had a great gathering. And in both of those dialogues, I simply asked one question. Like, how can I be a good pastor to you right now? And obviously, there's so much going on I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a law enforcement expert, I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you the common theme that I heard from both groups is we feel exhausted. Yeah. You know, police officers, the, the good men and women of our church, they're exhausted from standing on the line and being screamed at and having things thrown at them and assumptions being made about who they are as an individual or a person. And you know, the black community has grown exhausted too of trying to explain to people what their experience has been like. Exhaustion. I think we all need rest. We all need to be able to live in the day and move the gospel forward and the, thing, the challenges that are part of this day and time, but we also need rest. And I think that the Bible is teaching us that rest and gratitude are companions. When is the last time you rested? I mean really rested. When is the last time that you were grateful? You know, I would be willing to bet that it was in the same moment. Gratefulness, a gratitude for the day and living in that posture of dependence on God is what gives us rest in a time of unrest and uncertainty. You know, that's, that's one of the unique things of the gospel. You see, without Jesus, without the gospel, everything's on me. Everything's on my vote and my protest 
and the work that I can do and the wars that I will fight and the, the, the policies and the politicians, it's all on me being able to control it. And th- again, this is not a relinquishment of our responsibility, but without the gospel, it's all on us, everything. And receiving the gospel is really an acknowledgement of our need. It's an acknowledgement that this is so much bigger than me. And I need the creator, the one we learned about in recent weeks. And it's in knowing that, in knowing our creator, knowing that it doesn't all rely upon me, that we find rest. And out of that rest comes purposeful and intentional living. It enables us to live gratefully a day at a time in the middle of the wilderness. If you're wondering what the gospel is, it's just simply that none of us is so far from God that God's love can't reach us. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you think you've done or what you've been told about yourself. God's forgiveness is unconditional. And he says, bring your burden to me and lay it on me and I'll give you rest. And it also means that those of us that are trying to be so righteous and do everything so correctly that we live under this constant load of guilt that we can never be good enough. And so to those that feel like you're always trying to measure up, it's like, again, Jesus says, bring it to me and lay it on me. I will take your anxieties and your cares, cast them upon me, and I will give you rest. And when we do that, we can live with that intentional and purposeful way, but also we have a gratitude in our hearts that lets us rest. In Deuteronomy 8.3, I'm gonna have the band come up now. Um, We're told why God led the children of Israel into the wilderness. It says that he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of our Lord. You know, Jesus echoes those same, those same words when he talks about himself in John six forty eight. He says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus draws a parallel between what he brought to this earth and manna. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us to close this service with communion with the realization that our satisfaction and our contentment and our gratitude and our way forward is all tied to what Jesus has done for us. And so if you've prepared um, yourself for this moment, uh, I would invite you to take communion with me. Jesus said of himself as the bread of life that his body was broken for us. That he gave his entire being 
to us. If you have the bread with you right now, would you, would you partake of it with your family or with your group, solo? And just remember that Jesus' body was broken for you. And then after Jesus had broken the bread, he pointed to the cup and he said, this cup represents the covenant that I've made with you through my blood, that Jesus gave his life for us. And that involved his blood flowing from him. He sacrificed everything as the son of God for you and I. And he invited us to drink from that cup not just literally as we will here in a second, but also spiritually and emotionally that we drink our life from Jesus. Would you join me if you have prepared your cup in drinking the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Hey, Sunridge person watching these are crazy times and we're all exhausted and I mean again we're just talking about the global issues there are so many things going on in our personal lives we have our Lord we don't have to live in a way that just creates anxiety and stress and anger. God has given us his son. He's given us the gospel, the bread of life, and he's provided for us. We can live in gratitude day to day. It's something that we're learning in the wilderness. God bless you. Um, Would you join us worshiping together now?